Hey, welcome uh, today to Online Experience, Grace Church Norton. I'm Dan, I'm one of the pastors here, and love the fact you're checking things out. If I've never met you, been introduced to you, love for you to send us an email. Uh, I'd love for you to let us know you're uh, listening, watching. We're glad you're here, so glad you're here. If you don't have a church home, come hang out with us. 8 o'clock, 9.30, 11 o'clock every Sunday, and then 5.30 we have as well. So we'd love to meet you. We'll save a seat for you. Come hang out with us. want to talk to you if you know a high school student. We have our high school retreat next weekend, and so be praying about that. And if you haven't signed up and you're a high school student, sign up. I get the privilege of going hanging out with these high school students next weekend. Looking forward to that. We're going to talk about the four big questions, most important questions that you can answer that will change your life and maybe somebody else's. So come be a part of that. Pray for it uh, as you think about next weekend. Uh, what I was thinking about uh, kind of talking to you today, I was thinking about one of the most discouraging statistics for a preacher is this. I don't know if you knew this or not. You'd have no reason to know this maybe, but people forget 95% of what you say 72 hours after you say it. Just think about that. They, they forget. So, so chances are by Wednesday, you're going to forget 95%. Of what I say. And so that, that can be discouraging for a preacher, somebody who preaches sermons, right? Yeah, there's a sermon that people haven't forgotten. It is a sermon we're looking at. And it has been called the greatest sermon, right? That was ever preached. It was preached by Jesus. And even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard of this sermon. You've even probably heard things that are from that sermon. All these years later, maybe things like this. See if you can finish this. Turn the other, yeah, you've heard of it. Turn the other cheek. Seek first his kingdom. Do to others as you would have them do to you. You've heard of this sermon. Uh, how about this one? Only God can judge me, right? That's not from this sermon. <laughs> I got you, right? There's a rapper, Tupac, and that's part of his singing. But but this sermon is one that a lot of people know and quote, and they are familiar with, even if they're not familiar with the Bible. Uh, this sermon that we're looking at, Matthew 5, is where you have your Bibles. It is 111 verses covering three chapters, 5, 6, and 7. It's 111 verses. It's about 2,400 words. One guy actually timed it out and said it would take about 20 minutes to deliver this sermon at 125 words per minute. So this sermon is going to take about 20 minutes to deliver. We're going to take a couple months to look at it. Now, this sermon's all about the kingdom. Jesus is preaching the sermon, right? And uh, he's kind of given the kingdom manifesto, uh, or maybe to put it this way, the kingdom constitution, and here's what we've said, how you approach this sermon is important because it will dictate your response. A lot of people read this and they have different responses. I'm going to use this today because I really, really want you to see something. That there are some people that they approach this simply as a sermon. And so when you come to it and you approach it just as a sermon, you're going to have one of two responses more than likely. One response is you're going to grit it out. You're going to do your best to obey it, adhere to it, right? And there are some people like, man, this is the moral code. I'm going to keep the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, one author said it this way. Anybody who has thought they're, they're going to keep the Sermon on the Mount has obviously never read it. And you're going to find that out really quick. Which leads other people, if you just approach this as a sermon, you're going to Give it up. If you approach this just like a sermon, 
you're gonna either grit it out, I'm gonna try to keep it perfectly, or you're gonna be like, I can't. And you're just gonna give it up. And so what we said, and Aiden led us in this last week, did a beautiful job setting this up. He said there's another way that when we read this, we can't just read it as a sermon and leave and say, okay, I'm gonna do my best to keep it, or I'm just gonna give up, I can't do it. But somehow this sermon needs to point us to the preacher. And the preacher's name is Jesus. I want you to see this. And, and when we listen to this sermon and look at this sermon the next couple of months, it's got to draw us in. That what it leads to is a humble repentance. Humble repentance. Jesus actually said this, that, that he's talking to the blessed are the poor in spirit, right? The desperate. Like what happens is I come to Jesus and I'm like, I can't fix myself. I can't save myself. I can't satisfy the longing inside of me on my own. And so what happens is Jesus said that here he came to preach the kingdom of God and he says, repent, the kingdom of God is him. So it leads me to humble repentance. And then it leads me to, I'm gonna write it this way, worshipful, Transformation. Worshipful transformation. Like, like, this is what the sermon does. Now, this is going to come in handy as we look at some things because the fact of the matter is that if I grit it out, it's going to lead to this prideful, arrogant hypocrisy. If I just give up on it, it's going to lead to this tolerant complacency. But the sermon, what it does is it draws me in to Jesus, the person of Jesus, the preacher, the one who's preaching the sermon. And it leads me when he talks to this humble repentance. I need Jesus. And it doesn't just lead me to that, but when I come into relationship with Jesus, when I come into this beautiful relationship with Jesus, I abide with Jesus. It leads me to a worship-filled transformation. The sermon that he's preaching called the Sermon on the Mount was primarily preached to his disciples. But, but you need to know something. The crowd was there too. And that's very important to know because my guess is watching this, that same audience is represented. Some of you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. Some of you are like, I, I, I'm a Christian uh, and, and, and I'm a big fan of Jesus. Others of you would say, I'm not a Christian, but I want to listen to what he has to say and I want to check some things out. And some of you are like, I know lots of Christians and I'm furious at Christians, whatever the case may be. There's a big crowd listening to Jesus as he gives this sermon. And last week, Aiden said he began to talk to us about how we, in this upside-down world we live in, relate to God and Jesus, the right-side-up king. And today, he's going to take it a step further. And he's going to talk to us about now how we relate to the world that we live in. He says, you are the salt of the earth. He's talking to his followers. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? No longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are, say with me, the light of the world. Town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, it's pretty simple, right? Jesus is just giving some labels to his followers. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. When I read this, I think about this. You're either, you either are or you're not. I think about that all kinds of things, right? Uh, think about it just in life. You either are a fisherman or you're not. You ever been around somebody, they're a fisherman. I, a guy came into church last week and uh, he, the first thing he said to me, he says, hey, Pastor Dan, I got a seven pound pike. And I'm like, you know, I'm not a fisherman. I'm like, is that good? You know, I don't even know, right? I mean, you either are or you're not. Uh, you're either, you either are a Star Wars fan or you're not. I mean, I have all kinds of people around here and they're big Star Wars fan junkies and they're talking about all this stuff and I really don't know what they're talking about. You know, I'm not. Uh, I would say this way, you either are a football fan or you watch the Super Bowl to watch the halftime show and to see Taylor Swift. I don't know. You either are or you're not. I think about that when I read this. You either are or you are. You, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You either are or you are not. Now, this is important because Jesus is labeling his followers. He said, you are. That's what he's saying. And this is important because a lot of Christians will label themselves. All kinds of ways we label ourselves. Evangelical, all kinds of things. He said, here's how the label is. Now, I would say this. There's lots of non-Christians that label Christians. Maybe you're one. And can we just be honest? Sometimes the labels they give Christians are not that flattering, and sometimes their non-flattering labels are well-deserved and well-earned. That's why this conversation for the next 30 minutes or so is so important, no matter if you're a follower of Jesus or not. Because some of you are not followers of Jesus, and I want you to hear right from Jesus' mouth what it is that he labeled his followers. Uh, this is not some politician saying, here's what Christians are and should be and this, that, and the other. This isn't a celebrity, some famous athlete. This isn't a caricature on TV. This isn't the angry guy who lives beside you. This isn't what Christians say about themselves. This is right from Jesus' own lips. This is what ought to be. And it might not jive with what you've experienced is when you encounter Christians in your life. For those of you who would say, I'm a follower of Christ, a believer, I find it interesting that Jesus nowhere, nowhere does he ever call us Christians. But here he gives the first label to his followers. Here's what he says. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In the first 10 verses, he said, here's how you in this upside down world relate with God. It's counterintuitive. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. He goes on and on and on. He said, here's how you relate with God. Now he's going to say, here's how you and I relate in the world. And he chooses two very common household items, salt and light, been common to them. He starts by saying, you are the salt of the earth. What in the world does he mean when he says that? More importantly, when he said it in the first century, the first original audience, what would they have understood him to mean? That's what we need to ask. Here's what I can tell you. First century, salt was a very valuable commodity. Not as much so nowadays. In fact, they would sometimes pay each other in salt. 
Uh, Roman soldiers would be paid in salt sometimes. Maybe you've heard this saying before, uh, you're not worth your, yeah, you've heard of that, right? Your salt, that's where it comes from. Uh, not only that, they would use it as a salary or payment, but covenants were ratified in salt. Friendships were experienced. There was this saying that said this, uh, as, as friends, let us share salt together. Try that the next time you call your friend. Instead of saying, hey, let's go get coffee together. Hey, let's share salt together. But, but it would have represented, this is how you ratify a covenant, this agreement. This is how we experience friendship together, sharing salt together. It had medicinal purposes. It's an antibacterial that literally there is a passage in the book of Ezekiel that talks about a baby being born and them cleaning the baby Chapter 16, verse 4, you can check me on that. And rubbing the baby in salt. It had this medicinal value. But I think maybe more what is familiar and would have been familiar to them as well is that salt is seasoning. Can I get an amen on that? How many of you out there love salt? I love salt. I love, if you had a choice, okay, little poll. If you had a choice between salted potato chips and unsalted, how many of you are choosing to salt it every time? I'm choosing the salt at every time, right? Salt is this thing. It's like, I don't go to the cupboard just to eat salt, but boy, I sure do like salt. And it just seems to make corn on the cob taste better. I put salt on just about everything. I grew up putting salt on my watermelon, right? Give me an amen for that. Watermelon's good with salt on it. Salt seasons. But there's another thing. It doesn't just season, but it preserves uh, they would have understood it that way. In fact, maybe primarily that way. There was no refrigeration. And so what salt does, drawing moisture out of the meat, right? It literally slows down the decaying process. Stay with me on this. I think it's important. He says, you are the salt of the earth. I think what Jesus is saying is this, is that followers of Jesus are representatives of the covenant, the new covenant friendship we have with God. And he's saying, now I want your lives individually and your lives collectively to be an influencing, seasoning, preserving agent in a world that's breaking down. I want your lives individually and collectively to slow down the decay and to season the earth. I think the big idea of salt is this, is that we're to be a subtle influence. That followers of Jesus are to have subtle influence that salt influences the food it's put on and it preserves it, slows down the decay. He's saying this, those of us who've entered a friendship with God through the new covenant found in Jesus, we share salt with God. We have this new covenant relationship. We now season and preserve the naturally deteriorating earth that we live in. That's what he's saying. I want you to be the salt of the earth. Uh, how are we going to do that? Several things. Get your pen ready. I want you to write these down. First is this. If we're going to be a subtle influence, we're going to have to acknowledge our world is naturally breaking down. Do you already know that? Right? Uh, you can read this clear back in the book of Genesis that that breakdown begins, sin enters the scene, and all of a sudden deterioration and erosion and decay. Uh, you, you know this just by looking at the material world you live in. It's why you have to constantly do repairs to your house. Anybody with me on that? It feels like you get one thing fixed and another thing goes, right? 
Uh, our cars constantly breaking down or uh, rusting and have to get new ones, right? The tires wear. It's like we live in this world that is naturally breaking down. We know this uh, with our bodies. With our bodies, our body. Can I get an amen on that? Anybody? Uh, right? <laughs> I went to the doctor this week uh, just for a checkup. And the nurse is doing all the things and asking me all the questions and... Uh, she, you know, she's asking me, what kind of things do you have wrong and what kind of medicines are you taking? And then she had the audacity to look at me. A young guy looked at me and said, well, you're not doing too bad for a 57-year-old man. <laughs> I'm like, well, thank you very much. I didn't know whether that was an insult or a compliment. Uh, we have an incredible facility team here, incredible. Uh, it's made up of uh, three people and then lots of volunteers. Uh, but one of those people on that facility team, his name is David Austin. I hope he's watching this or will watch this. He said to me the other day, I said, how you doing, Dave? And he said, man, I, you know, Dan, I got a, a, a little kink in my neck. I said, oh, man, what, what'd you do? He said, I went to bed last night and I woke up, right? Our bodies just naturally break down and sometimes for no particular reason other than we're just getting older, Right? Uh, relationships naturally break down, right? They can evaporate, deteriorate if we don't work at them. Marriages get stale over time if we're not putting effort in. And then you and I both know this, that we live in a society that is on its own, has a natural tendency to disruption, discord, division. What Jesus is saying is this, in a naturally breaking down society, there is a need for salt. And sometimes here's where we get kind of sideways, because we begin to think of all kinds of things to do that are going to help our naturally breaking down society. And I think that's where it's important for us when we write this down is to say that our subtle influence realizes there are no salt substitutes. He says, you are the salt of the earth. There are no salt substitutes in the kingdom of God. How many of you ever use that Mrs. Dash stuff? I don't want to, like, if you're right, if you love it, whatever, but that just don't cut it for me. Like, I want salt. There are no salt substitutes. In the kingdom of God, there are no salt substitutes. Sometimes we can try to substitute, bring change, try to bring change through all kinds of substitute salt solutions. Uh, we read it this way, politics will be the salt of the earth. Or, or, or education, all these things are fine and good, or, or psychology, or social work, or philanthropy. Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth. Not, not those things, but you are. Now look at what Jesus says. He says it's a subtle influence. Our world's breaking down. There are no substitutes. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. But here it is. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be me salty again? No longer good for anything. Thrown out, trampled underfoot. He says this. He says, don't lose the distinctive flavor and effects of salt. Salt has a very distinct flavor and a very distinct effect. You know salt when you taste it. It has a very distinct effect. And salt that is not salty, he's saying, is useless. Actually, the word where we get this phrase is the Greek word is the word we get moron from. It's, it's to be foolish. It's, it's to be tasteless, useless. 
what he's saying here is this. He's saying that when it comes to being a subtle influence in our world, he's saying don't lose as followers of Christ your effective distinctiveness. He says that salt, salt has this distinct effectiveness. He says, as followers of Christ, I don't want you to lose your effective distinctness. That's what he's saying. He's saying that salt is something we are before it's ever something we do. Write that down somewhere, that salt is something we are. We are the salt of the earth before it's something we do. What are ways that you and I, as followers of Christ, can lose our saltiness? What are ways that we can lose that distinctness? Well, Scripture has several ways. Colossians 4 says that we can lose it by not being gracious and kind in the way we talk to people who aren't believers. Uh, Mark chapter 9 says we can lose our saltiness when there's all kinds of discord and division and fighting among ourselves or if we cause other people to stumble. Luke 14 says one way to lose your saltiness is by having a half-hearted commitment to following Jesus. You see, what Jesus is saying in this sermon is this, is that saltiness, having a subtle influence, is about being a different kind of weird. Not the kind of weird that's a Jesus jerk. You know I'm talking about that kind of weird? Like, you know that kind of weird, and it's like, that's, you're just weird for the sake of being weird, and you've attached Jesus to it. But a different kind of weird is a way that looks at the Sermon on the Mount and says, I'm going to be the kind of person who has humble convictions, a genuine kindness, full of truth and grace. Like, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who, right? And I'm going to be the salt of the earth because I'm going to have a different kind of weird. I would say one more thing, and then I want to show you something. That if you and I are going to have a subtle influence, we're going to keep our distinct effectiveness, and we're going to spread out. One way for salt not to be effective is for it to clump together. Is is for it to never salt what it was meant to be salted. I think this fits. We will have no influence if we're always clumping together as followers of Christ. I love the way John Stott said this. God intends us to penetrate the world. Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in elegant little ecclesiastical salt shakers, sellers. Our place is to be rubbed into the secular community. As salt is rubbed into meat to stop it going bad. And when society does go bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach to the non-Christian world, but should we not rather reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is where is the salt? I love that. Salt is effective when it is distinctly salty and it spreads out. I had written in some notes previously that the most sacred moment of any church service is when we open the doors of the church and the church walks back into the neighborhood, school, and workplace they came from to influence the world, to be the salt. You see, my guess is you can think of all kinds of reasons that you can't be salt. Sometimes we think to ourselves 
that we need a bigger platform, a big rally, a big initiative, a big piece of legislation, a big candidate. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, like salt, disciples of Jesus may feel small, insignificant, and powerless in a society that is power mad. Yet they have the ability to influence every part of society, to penetrate the whole of society. He says, you are the salt. Now, now look back here. If I approach this just as a sermon, I'm going to lose my saltiness. Because what's going to happen is I'm going to tend to try to grit it out. And you know what? Those, when I try to grit it out, I become a Jesus jerk in some ways. You tracking with me? I, I become somebody who has this condemning message. And I have this tendency to clump. We, we, we just do things with other Christians. We form all kinds of Christian associations because I grit it out. Or I lose my saltiness when I just give it up. If I approach it like a sermon and, and, and now there's nothing distinct about me, I become just like the culture. There's absolutely no distinction. On this side, there's no distinction. On this side, there's no saturation. And so when, when, when I give it up, there, the only difference between me and my friends at work who aren't followers of Jesus, I go to church once in a while, they don't. You see, what he's saying is, no, you're the salt. And, and what happens when your salt is this, when I see a world that's decaying, I don't criticize and run from it. I, I don't just run into it and get enveloped in it. But I run to Jesus because I realize that he ran to me. And, and what happens when I'm the salt of the earth, we run into the decay because he ran into ours. And when we're the salt of the earth, there's this kind conviction, this humble compassion that begins to show up. And you know when you're around somebody who is the salt of the earth. Because you know. Like there's this humble kind conviction. They don't compromise on the truth, and yet they are genuinely kind. And even if you don't believe what they believe, you're drawn somehow. You're seasoned by it. Uh, people like this, you know people like this? Uh, when you're around people like this, they're telling you what the Bible says, and you need to, what the Bible this, and the Bible that, and the Bible, and I love the Bible, and I want to read the Bible, know more of the Bible, but the Bible points me to Jesus, and people who are the salt of the earth, when you're around them, you're like, I think those people know Jesus, not just the Bible. You see the difference? You see, the way you approach this sermon is so important. Uh, it's interesting because he goes on and he says this, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Uh, these pictures go together, salt, right? So saturate, subtle influence, salt. Salt is hidden, light is obvious. Salt works within, light works without. Salt subtly works and it works best when it's spread out. Light is obvious and visible and works best when it's focused together. I would say this, if salt is subtle influence, can we say this, that light is visible hope? He says, I want you to be a visible beacon of hope in a world that's dark. You ever been in complete overwhelming darkness? You ever been in just complete darkness? And there's something about the scary. You feel hopeless. 
confused, not sure which way to go, not sure of the danger that might be lurking, right? And then when you turn the light on, there's something that all of a sudden reveals the danger. It doesn't just reveal the danger, but it points out the way. You see, I think that's what he's saying. That if you and I are going to be visible hope, we're going to acknowledge our world is looking for hope. Uh, we live in a country that's desperate for hope. That's why this Sermon on the Mount is so important. It's not just a sermon, but it's about how do we be visible hope, a subtle influence and visible hope in our world. Uh, here's how I know that our world is looking for hope. We hire or we elect candidates for office who have the mantra of hope. You know, that guy, Ronald Reagan, 1984, said, I want to see America become a shining city on a hill. Uh, the first President Bush said this, that I am trying to lead us into a kinder and gentler America. And he instituted this thing called a thousand points of light, of hope. Uh, Bill Clinton, 1992, said, I end tonight where it all began for me. I still believe in a place called hope. Uh, President Bush, 2004, said, I want a safer and more hopeful America. Uh, President Obama, 2008, ran on this motto, hope and change. We live in a world that's looking for hope. And so if we're going to be visible hope, we have to acknowledge that our world is looking for hope. And this is nothing new. The Bible says the world we live in is characterized by darkness. Now, in the Bible, there's two main predominant things that darkness points to. First is this. Darkness points to this moral evilness, this, this morally evil. John 3 kind of talks about this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And so it's this, we think about it, you know, Star Wars, back to Star Wars, right? Everything's back to Star Wars, right? The dark side and the light side. But it's not just morally evil that darkness can also uh, represent spiritually naive, uh, that's the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians chapter 4 says, With the Lord's authority I say, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused, spiritually naive. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds, hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. What he's saying is these things are like there's a confusion, like I'm in the dark. It doesn't always make sense. What a great description of our world. Like we, we can see in our world this this the, 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 there's more morality is kind of uh, something that's on a decline in many pockets, but there's also this spiritual naivety and and what he's saying is that in a world that's looking for hope, he's saying that left to itself, it's in the dark. But he says, "You're the light of the world." And look what he says. And if you're the light of the world, people don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. What's he saying? That if you and I are going to be visible light, he said, don't hide the light. Don't hide the light. How do followers of Jesus, can I ask you a question? How do followers of Jesus hide the light? How do we do that? Well, can I just, I mean, I, I don't need to make this up. How do we hide the light? 
Well, I think there's all kinds of ways. The book of Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, says this, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Find out what pleases the Lord. And then he says this, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. He's saying, I don't want you to participate. I don't want you to, he's like, I don't want you to read this thing like a sermon. It's like, I'm just going to do what everybody else is doing and just kind of blend. But then he says this, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. I think what he's saying is this, is the way that you and I can hide the light is we can just become like the world, just do whatever, right? Just jump in the fruitless deeds of darkness. He says we also, though, can waste our lives, right? We can waste our opportunity. Uh, the book of Philippians says that there's uh, another way that you and I can hide our light. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you'll find, Then you'll shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. He's saying that in the middle of a crooked and perverse, dark generation, dark world, that if all Christians do uh is complain and murmur and argue, we're going to hide the light. You see, the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is this, is that back to this, that, that ways that you and I can hide the light is this. We can hide the light by just, we're going to be chameleon Christians. We're going to be covert Christians. Like It's always interesting to me. It's like, I read this like, there's no way I can follow what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, you know what? I go to church, but I go to work, and there's no virtual difference. It's what happens when somebody comes up to you after working with you for 20 years, and they find out you went to church, and they say, I didn't know you were a Christian. That's probably not a great thing right? But, but the flip side is this, is that we can hide the light in ways that aren't as obvious to us. Like, we can hide the light by wasting our opportunity. We can hide the light by complaining and murmuring about the crooked, warped, dark world that we might live in, right? Just pointing a finger at them. And, and what happens is we become these condemning Christians who grit it out, when all the while there's a hypocrisy with that, right? That, that we point a finger at the world, not looking inside. And he's saying we hide the light when that happens. But he says, you're the light of the world. He says, that's not how the sermon's to be read. He says, but, but the deal is this, is the sermon pushes us to Jesus. And what did Jesus say about himself? That he is the light of the world. And in, in humble repentance, I remember the darkness I was in, and I remember I needed the light of the grace of God found in Jesus. And that I want to abide with Jesus. And the more I abide with Jesus and remember the light of his grace in my life, the more I reflect the one who is the light of the world. You see, visible hope is about reflecting Jesus to the world. The sermon will push me to Jesus. I'm not the initiator or the source of light, but I'm a reflection of the one I abide with. Visible hope isn't about, let's go out and, it's about me 
abiding with Jesus so that I reflect to the world Jesus. He says, you're the light of the world. He says something else. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Why did he say that? It almost sounds misplaced. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that might have been unusual, been expensive to build a town on top of a hill. A city on a hill is literally what it says. What is he saying there? Well, a city on a hill would have had all kinds of lanterns and torches, and it would have given light for miles to come. I think what he's saying is, you are, we sing this song, right? You ever sing it? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. He says, this word here is plural. It's y'all. And so I think he's trying to tell us something here. Y'all, followers of mine, y'all are the light of the world. Say that with me. Y'all are the light of the world. I think what he's saying is this. Y'all create a counterculture of hope. He's like, y'all together create a counterculture. As you lean into what this sermon is teaching, it pushes you to Jesus. And this sermon is going to push you to abiding with Jesus. I need Jesus. And the more it pushes you to Jesus, the more you reflect his light to the world together. And he's going to say some things in this sermon that are countercultural about sex, about money, about our possessions, about worry, about relationships, about power, about how we interact with our enemies. And he says that as those things that we're going to learn in this sermon push us to Jesus, together we create a counterculture of hope in a world that's in the dark trying to find its way. Which leads to the end of the sermon. Y'all are light of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's where the phrase, shine the light's bright on Jesus. He's saying that the light shows up in these good deeds, shows up in a life that is transformed by Jesus. And what happens when I'm truly shining the light in a way that has been transformed by Jesus, it brings glory to God. Not glory to me. Not I didn't know. But when I shine the lights bright on Jesus in this kind of way, it brings glory to God. And here's what he's saying is that when you and I shine the lights on Jesus, ready? Some are going to be invited into that. Some are going to run to that. But you need to know something. Some will reject it. Which is why this part is actually attached to the verses before it. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What he's saying here is this. He's saying, blessed are you not if, but when. In 2 Timothy Chapter 3, it says this, that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's fascinating. He says, blessed are you when people insult you. Like some will receive it and give glory to God. That's how you know you've shined the lights that reflect Jesus is when they 
attached to God, give glory to God, make much of God. But he says, don't be surprised if you are the salt and light and they insult you, they persecute you, they say false things against you, but this is key, because of me. Not because I was an idiot, a jerk, not because I was ungracious or unkind, but he said, blessed are you. And then he says this, when this happens, when you're truly being salt and light, he says, rejoice and be glad. He's saying, don't whine when that happens, but rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here's what he's saying. You know what salt and light does? It shines the lights bright on God. And when, not if, it's insulted and persecuted because of Jesus, it doesn't whine. It doesn't lose its saltiness and hide its light. Isn't it easy to hide our light and lose our saltiness when people are insulting you, persecuting you, saying, isn't that the easiest time to all of a sudden, I'm going to, right? He's saying, blessed are you. He says, rejoice and be glad. It makes me think Peter picked up on this in his book, 1 Peter 3. Be sympathetic, like-minded, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Stay with me on this. On the contrary, repay evil with, there's our word, blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. Down to verse 13. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are what? Say it with me. You are what? Blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always, here it is, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the what? Visible hope that you have. You know when the visible hope shines the brightest is when things seem the darkest. But do this with gentleness and respect, salt. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Subtle influence. You see, Jesus is saying this, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. It makes me think this, if I could just end with this. John Stott said, Our Christian habit is to bewail the world's deteriorating standards with an air of rather self-righteous dismay. We criticize its violence, dishonesty, immorality, disregard for human life, and materialistic greed. The world is going down the drain, we say with a shrug. But whose fault is it? Who is to blame? Let me put it like this. If the house is dark when nightfall comes, there is no sense in blaming the house. You don't say, man, this house is, what's wrong with this house? That is what happens when the sun goes down. The question is what? Where's the light? Similarly, if the meat goes bad and becomes inedible, there is no sense in blaming the meat. That's what happens when bacteria are left alone to breed. The question to ask is, where's the salt? Just so if society deteriorates and its standards decline until it becomes like a dark night or a stinking fish, there's no sense in blaming society. 
That's what happened when fallen men and women are left to themselves and human selfishness is unchecked. The question to ask is, where's the church? Why are the salt and the light of Jesus Christ not permeating and changing our society? You see, some of you are listening to this and you're not followers of Christ. And so what you've been used to experiencing when you encounter those who are, are people who maybe are critical, or people who are chameleons. People who are condemning, or people who don't look any different than you, they just go to church, duplicitous. And I want you to know this, I'm so sorry that's your experience that many of us have given you. But for those of us who are followers of Christ, this Sermon on the Mount pushes us into Jesus. And even, even when persecution and insult comes, it pushes us deeper into Jesus so that the light shines brighter, deeper into Jesus so that the salt spreads further and deeper. That's what he's saying. To this you were called, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. In a world that is looking for hope in the dark, and confused. God, would you help us to be salt and light? Would you show us the arenas where you have called us to be salt, whether that's work, neighborhood, home, ball team? And God, would you help us to not hide the light, but to run into Jesus in a way that we reflect and shine the lights bright on him, bringing the light of Jesus to relationships and conversations, and God, as we have opportunity, would you help us to be prepared to give the reason, namely Jesus, for the hope that we have. I pray this in his name. Amen.